You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 27th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. I think there was quite a lot of ill feeling that surrounded her, quite a lot of resentment when she first took the job because she was, in a, in a way, parachuted in. Ursula von der Leyen's European Commission gets ready for action. My guests Mary Dichevsky and Daniela Pellet will discuss that and the day's other news, including after a clash between the UK's leader of the opposition and one of the country's elder statesman journalists last night, we ask if the combative political interview is useful. And is Finland full of snowflakes? Plus... Inside, where massage tables and nail baths once stood, there were now racks of chunky roll necks and pleated trousers and wooden pallets laden down with beanies and totes. Why New York still has what it takes in the retail stakes? I am Marcus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined by Daniela Pellet, who is Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Mary Dzichewski, writer for The Independent and The Guardian. Welcome to the programme. First today, after a stuttering start, Ursula von der Leyen's European Commission is set to begin work on the 1st of December, a month late. Issues arose around a few of the candidates initially fielded for the work. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has dragged his feet putting anyone forward, while the European Parliament rejected candidates from France, Romania and Hungary. Von der Leyen also attracted some heat for her choice of job titles. She was forced to change the Promoting Our European Way of Life department to Promoting the European Way of Life, on the grounds that the former sounded a bit fascist. Mary, if I may start with you, how has von der Leyen calibrated her commission What has changed? Well, I think quite a lot has changed, actually. Um, More in terms of the shape of it, in that there seems to be quite a clear um, precedence in that there's three very senior commissioners and then there's another layer and a layer below that. Um, So, in a way, it looks slightly more rationally organised than before. But, of course, that risks um, offending quite a lot of people who find themselves not in the top three. Um, Because one of the principles, as I understand it, of the European Commissioner is that every member has a commissioner and they have a certain responsibility, which, of course, has become much more difficult as um, as the EU has um, expanded. Um, nonetheless, that there should be a sort of feeling of um, equality, everybody um, being an equal member of the EU. And um, it may be that if that's been lost or if sufficient people feel that it's been lost, then it could come back to haunt or sort of unlion in the sense that um, she may find things a bit more difficult to manage. It is indeed a difficult balancing act taking into account all the member states. Daniela, what is your opinion? How well has, he, has Ursula von der Leyen succeeded in, in, in creating this new commission? Well, I don't think there's any uh, that the EU can be anything apart from a bureaucratic hot mess, really, by its very nature. So you just it's about minimising that. Uh, going forward... Uh, she seems an extremely capable uh, figure. Um, and perhaps narcissistically, I can't really see very far beyond 
Brexit as being the major challenge uh, that awaits her. And um, from the, she comes from a defence background and it seems she uh, is going to play a large role in this endless debate about Europe's uh, joint military po- uh, policy or, you know, as the tabloid newspapers like to put it, the European army. Mary, how much personality is von der Leyen able to bring to the role of a commission president? Well, I think she, um, I think there was quite a lot of ill feeling that surrounded her, quite a lot of resentment um, when she um, first took the job because she was, in a, in a way, parachuted in and there were people who felt they'd got a better, um, who were more entitled and more qualified for that job. She came from being defence minister in Germany and um, had been seen at some point as a possible um, successor to Angela Merkel. Um, That didn't pan out either. Um, And I have to say that I've been um, maybe slightly less um, admiring than um, Danielle of um, Ursula von der Leyen's um, capabilities. Um, But she has got a commission together. um, And so far, at least, she hasn't made too much of a fuss um, about the absent British commissioner, um, which I think is one of the... It is an interesting question because according to the letter of the law, um, the British should have nominated a commissioner. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think Boris Johnson says the reason he hasn't nominated one is because of the election, that everything is impaired or all those sort of appointments are in suspension for the duration of the election campaign. I think there's actually a bit more to it than that um, because I think that he may have felt that if he'd nominated a commissioner for the UK, um, whether or not we end up um, with Brexit being actually done on the 31st of January, it would look as though there was a possibility of the UK carrying on. Um, And I think that's something he very, very much wanted to avoid during the campaign. So besides Brexit, then, what are the most pressing issues the Commission is going to or should be dealing with next? Well, I think defence. I mean, there's a NATO summit uh, coming up, and I mean, this has been the main a main topic of discussion, especially given the current incumbent in the White House. Uh, um, there are there are some very strident voices in favour of improving military uh, cooperation and capability, as Emmanuel Macron said. Uh, it's not just the threats from Russia and China but also the the threat of disengagement, the disengagement of the US as well. So is uh, is Europe going to be more independent when it comes to protection and, and security? And will people pay what they need to? Because currently people, currently the member states don't pay the, the 2% that they're supposed to, uh, with, some, with some very few exceptions. And uh, coming from, the, yeah, as, you, as Mary said, the defence brief of uh, the German government, uh, I think the new commissioner is going to see that as you know, one of the main, one of of the main branches of her tenure. Mary, would you add something to the list of the most urgent issues the European Commission should be dealing with? Well, I think that one of the one of the issues that they maybe think that um, is one of the more urgent ones they should be dealing with is obviously the climate change issue, and that seems to be right up um, near the top of their agenda. Um, if I was going to add another one, um, maybe two. Um, one is migration, because any attempt to coordinate a sensible migration policy, what happens? 
happens to people stranded on boats in the Mediterranean, people stranded at the borders of the EU, um, there is still no agreement and no sensible arrangement for any sort of quota for processing and accepting um, people on any standardised basis. And I think that needs to be a priority. I think the other thing is whether um, the question of a trade agreement with the United States is going to come back. Um, because this has been rumbling on for practically as long as I can remember. Um, and it was recently put on hold. And there are actually huge issues um, between you know, what you could literally call sort of values and standards as between the United States and, and the EU. And I think the question is whether everybody's going to have another go at that or whether they're going to wait in the hope maybe that there'll be a new American president after the election. I would add one thing to that as well, which is uh, an issue which isn't going to go away, is what to do with recalcitrant members of the EU who are really on a different trajectory. I mean, uh, the obvious one is uh, increasing authoritarian Hungary. Poland is also showing definite tendencies in those ways. And that f feeds into all these other issues, especially migration. You know, If, you, if Hungary... Uh, is a fully functioning member of the EU, yet completely refuses to uh, cooperate when it comes to wider migration issues, then, you know, you've got yourself a problem. And that problem is, if we look at the, the trends of populism, that, tr that uh, problem is only going to increase. Do you think von der Leyen will be able to do anything about that issue besides trying to balance between West European nations and East European nations? Well, it's, it's difficult because... Uh, although Orban is quite clear about not wanting to, Orban as an example, not wanting to be dictated to by Western Europe, he also needs the money, frankly. Uh, and that's a similar pattern uh, everywhere. The, the idea is, can you exert pressure from within uh, without making this whole structure even more fragile. And I think Brexit is just making that uh, extremely problematic right now. There was a bit of controversy earlier when when von der Leyen had to rename the Promoting Our European Way of Life department into Promoting the European Way of Life. What is your impression? What exactly happened over there? And how much did these countries you, Daniela, mentioned, Poland and Hungary, for example, have to do with this? Well, I think that, 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 that there's a very, um, how shall I say, um, quite protective attitude to what would be, what they would call, um, and it's all our fault um, in, as it were, old Europe for um, introducing the idea of European values. And this gets repeatedly quoted back at old Europe by new Europe, who say that it's we who are actually um, falling down on um, observing European values. Um, but of course... Um, Poland and Hungary um, maybe see some of these values in a slightly different way. Um, but I do think that um, Ursula von der Leyen has one thing going for her. Um, as a German, and I mean, um, European um, MEPs and commissioners are supposed to, as it were, um, leave their passport at the door when they go into European institutions, that they're Europeans primarily and not nationals. But as a German, um, she is really on the side of the angels because um, with Angela Merkel's um, admission of so many migrants and refugees during the refugee crisis, 
crisis. Um, and so far, their relative success in absorbing so many people, um, she does actually, she, she, she has, um, as, as it were, an asset to bring to the table. Daniela Pellet and Mary Dzichewski there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here is Monaco's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we have been following today. Thanks, Marcus. U.S. Congress has invited President Donald Trump to its first impeachment hearing at the beginning of next month. The Democratic chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler, says that Trump can either attend the session or stop complaining about the process. An official at Hong Kong's Polytechnic University says that no protesters remain on the campus. It signals the end of a dramatic siege that saw anti-government demonstrators barricade themselves on college grounds. The siege has been one of the defining moments of the protests in Hong Kong. And members of Japan's parliament have worn collapsible plastic helmets as part of an earthquake drill. Earthquakes are commonplace in Japan, but the country's media reports that the drill prompted some confusion among some members who are unsure how the helmets should be worn. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Ben. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Daniela Pellet and Mary Dzichewski. Now, the combative political interview is something of an institution in the United Kingdom. And last night, Andrew Neil, a past master, offered an instructive lesson in how to deliver one. He spoke to Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party. Let's hear a bit of their exchange. Andrew, I think we also have to look at how we've created these dangers as well. That means the point I just raised... The point I just raised is a very serious one. It doesn't stop him from killing us. Andrew, you have to look to the future as well. That's what I'm doing. You were just looking to the past. This man is planning to to send terrorists to this country, but you cannot confirm tonight that you would get our special forces to take the appropriate action with the information I got at the appropriate time. British press had a field day with the interview today, but are interviews like this particularly instructive when it comes to helping the electorate decide how to cast its vote? Daniela, what do you think were the main takeaways from last night's chat? Well, the main takeaways is that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is petulant uh, and can't can't do very basic things like apologise for anti-Semitism or come out with a clear position on major issues, which confirms, I think, what we knew about him. Um, In general, I would say combative political interviews are a little bit of a cliche, uh, not always very illuminating, but I think they are useful in showing how how leaders stand up under pressure. The one-to-one pressure... uh, is something is something unique when it comes to getting information from them i mean that's not really the purpose um when it comes to understanding more about the, the human being or the person behind the role well that's something different that's for a soft feature but i think you can be i think you can do a hard hitting political interview without being quite so grandstanding as some of our the famous sort of big beasts uh, in British journalism, uh, and not that this should be divided along gender lines, but I think it's just a fact that if you look at uh, female journalists and reporters, uh, the interviewing style tends to be a little bit different. Mary, what do you think is the balance between having a combative approach and 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 trying to find out information? 
Well, what is the style and need in each situation? <laughs> I mean, it depends very much what you're trying to do. Um, are you trying to find things out, in which case maybe a, um, a softer approach may be recommended? Or are you trying actually to have some sort of dual? Are you trying to... Um, are you trying to um, get a reaction from the other side and um, hopefully a reaction that's going to attract headlines or is going to make a political difference? Um, and I, I, I can make a defence um, for both those approaches. Um, but I have to say that I sort of slightly disagree with Daniela about the um, Jeremy Corbyn interview um, because I, I watched it. It was creating such a fuss all over the social media last night um, that I watched it at dead of night um, on catch-up services. And I felt that Andrew Neil was completely out of court in a lot of cases. And I also wondered whether the um, Twitter response, especially, which was all over car crash interview, um, all the headlines this morning, Jeremy Corbyn fails to apologise, this, that and the other. Um, I just wondered whether people outside our particular um, political arena would have responded in the same way to Jeremy Corbyn's interview um, because it seemed to me there was a lot of deliberate needling, there was a lot of absolutely tiny details which Jeremy Corbyn, to my mind, handled quite competently and quite calmly. Um, and I just wonder whether the, whether the response out there as opposed to in here, might be a bit different. I mean, the thing is, is that Mr Corbyn has made a virtue out of sitting on the fence and giving equivocal answers, whether it's about Brexit or whether it's about anti-Semitism, which he always says anti-Semitism and all kinds of, of racism. And that's shone through in this particular context. It's quite clear if you say, you know, the, the big story of the day was the chief rabbi's uh, open address about the issue of anti-Semitism in Labour. It's pretty it shows a kind of human touch to say i am sorry about that and sort of address the the jewish community directly not asking a lot do these kind of interviews favor slick politicians over ones with integrity <laughs> that's a very very difficult question and i think um you know if if if, if i were responding in a sort of dualistic way mm -hmm. i would say what do you mean by integrity what do you mean by serious politician um i think in a way um maybe i withhold judgment because um the next interviewee for um andrew neil is going to be boris johnson apparently not tonight but um sometime in the future when he gets around to it um and and obviously, Andrew Neil will be obliged and will be temperamentally inclined to show to 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 make to take exactly the same approach that he took with um, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and so, I think that um, it's only after that that maybe we'll be able to judge if there is a very sharp contrast between the way Corbyn handled things and the way. Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson handles them, the way they come over to the public, then I think we might be in a position to answer that question. Just finally, do you think the, this, this kind of style of interviewing is uniquely a British thing? Do you think politicians in other parts of the world enjoy the same level of aggression from journalists? 
Oh well, it's hard to tell. I think it's hard to tell, but I think we have. I think we have fetishized it slightly. We, we all remember in this country, Jeremy Paxman asking the same question: Was it thirteen times? Was it seventeen times? Numerous times, and that's what puts me off a bit. It becomes a bit of a uh, of an end to itself. But the, this combative style, I think, will be very good with Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson's uh, unfortunate USP at the moment is somebody who does not recognise the truth. So when you put hold him to account and say. Is what is is this right or is this right? Give us a yes or no answer. I think that is going to quite possibly skewer him a little. I think that um, in many other countries, they are actually completely horrified, even now, um, by the combative nature of British political interviewing, um, that they regard politicians, especially um, national leaders, leaders of opposition, um, leaders of government, um, as people who (laughs) deserve a degree of respect. Um, So I don't think it's necessarily a style that travels. Um, Last week, we had a very interesting session where we had a studio audience um, asking questions of the political leaders one by one. Um, And there was an occasion where Boris Johnson was asked about um, something like integrity or credibility, um, and the studio audience laughed. Mm. Um, They they had also laughed at um, Jeremy Corbyn for one of his answers. And I came out of watching that Think, I don't think there is another country in the world where you would have a studio audience openly laughing and ridiculing you're basically leading politicians. Maybe in the United States you're approaching that, but only with the Trump presidency. And finally, it's been reported that in Finland there is now a significant demand for Santas who represent more feminist values. Parents are now looking for Santas who would not blurt out anything inconsiderate in front of children or wouldn't, for example, assume children's gender. Daniela, what does this sound like to you? Do you think my home country of Finland is a nation of snowflakes? Uh, we'll have to be very careful here, don't I? Uh well, you know, I'm I'm just the, I'm the sort of ultimate Grinch, really, and uh, Christmas leaves me very bar humbuggy, and uh, I think it would be good to maybe introduce an, an element of danger, perhaps, into the Santa. I, I'm sure in Finland, in, in many of these sort of northern countries, you have some quite sinister uh, traditions and sinister fairy tales. Or perhaps they could, perhaps you could update the Santa story with the. Uh, something a bit grimmer from the attic. Exactly. What do you think, Mary, about this new story? Well, I I mean, I I was intrigued because um, I seem to remember a while back that there was talk of having Mother Christmases as well as Father Christmases um, in the UK. And I think it was partly to do with the actual shortage of um, men of a certain age wanting to be Father Christmases and receiving small children um, in department store grottos and that sort of thing. Um, So I think there was a move which, um, in a way, has been lost. Um, But I would also say that um, talking of um, all these um, strange Nordic characters, um, I have on my Christmas tree every year um, a very small Baba Yaga, which is a Russian witch. Um, And it's very beautiful and she rides a besom broom. Um, But I have to say that I've had guests who look at it and say, that's a Baba Yaga, that should not be on a Christmas tree, that is pagan. Um, So I think that uh, maybe there's room for different opinions about this. Mary Dijewski and Daniela Pellet, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about why the Big Apple remains top for retail. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. 
for an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. This is Monocle's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, New York has long been a centre for retail, and it is still exciting. Here is why. Last week I went shopping during a short trip to New York. I had a particular shop in mind, but it isn't registered on CityMapper, and it took me a while to locate it. Eventually, on a quiet street in Chinatown beneath the grass-green awning bearing the words Ming Beauty Salon Inc., I found it. The new shop by the menswear brand 18 East. Inside, where massage tables and nail baths once stood, there were now racks of chunky roll necks and pleated trousers and wooden pallets laden down with beanies and totes. Whoever says New York retail is dead hasn't been to Chinatown, a patch at the bottom of the world's most famous island with an intoxicating mix of chaos and calm. Other recent menswear additions to this neighbourhood, such as Bode and Aimé Léon Doré, are in more prominent spots. Yet there's a definite sense of discovery here. The most unlikely shopping spot, which I first visited a couple of years ago, is a series of retailers on the top floor of New York Mart Mall, a Chinese shopping centre near Manhattan Bridge. You must pass dozens of thronging food vendors and ascend a raggedy staircase before reaching a lovely record store and several vintage boutiques. This sense of adventure is partly born of necessity. Rents are cheaper if you're hidden on the top floor of a mall or tucked away on a sleepy side street. But in an era when everything is at our fingertips, it's exciting when shoppers have to work to find the thing we want. We just need a nudge in the right direction. That was the view from the editorial floor, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Orkesti Machilari and researched by Jolin Goffin and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Junger. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, that is at 1800 London time, 10am in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and good Bye.